scripture reading is in Matthew chapter 6, 24 through 34, and the focus is on verse 34. Uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on it. If not, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. They grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You may be seated. Well, good morning once again. It is my prayer that these weeks that we've been spending looking at Christ's words on anxiety have given you greater strength to overcome your anxiousness and get us greater strength to walk confidently in obedience to Christ. Beloved of Christ, I stand here not because I want to place condemnation upon you or upon anyone who is struggling with anxiety, but because I do believe that God has something greater for you. And you do not need to remain in bondage. If this morning you are feeling the weight of the life's troubles crushing down upon you, if you feel trapped by yesterday's failures, by today's impossible demands, or tomorrow's looming trials, then I plead with you once again to listen to the clear, direct, and loving words of our Lord. The frailty of your body, the cares of this life, and the shouts of the world all around you may be directing your gaze backward or forward or inward, yet I call your eyes heavenward. I call on you to see things from God's perspective. In no situation that you have ever faced or will ever face has God been caught unaware. He has not once been overwhelmed. 
He is not in the dark about what is to come. So I ask you to join me in prayer once again before we turn back to Christ's words. I ask that you would pray for your hearts in this matter. Pray for the hearts of those that are around you and those of our body who couldn't be here this morning. And I ask that you would pray for me as well as I labor to speak the words that God would have for us today. Father, we do come to you in prayer, confessing our need for you. No amount of effort or preparation or diligence can cause real change and real growth. We are utterly dependent on your spirit to move in us, among us, to give us the will and the ability to obey, to conform us to the image of Christ, to be made more pleasing to God. We are wholly and completely dependent on your mercy and your grace flowing out of your loving kindness, O God. Help us to be okay in that position. Keep our eyes on you. Give me the right words. Give me the right attitude in which to speak them. Let ears and eyes be open to hear and conform us all to Christ. Be pleased, O God, by our worship. Praising in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, this morning we are going to complete our three-week look at Jesus' command to his disciples that they must not be anxious about their lives, what they would eat, what they would drink, or what they would wear. We have looked at Jesus' appeal to reason and logic. Thereby, he has proved that God was able to meet their needs, that God cared about their needs, and that he knew about their needs. Remember I said that those are three things that are all necessary if a need is going to be met. Christ's reasoning went like this. The same God who gave you life is able to provide you food to sustain that life. The same God that gave you a body is able to clothe that body. He has already done the miraculous. He logically then is able to also be trusted for the ordinary. So God is able. God's children are of much greater value to him than are the birds of the air or the flowers of the field. And yet God feeds the birds and he clothes the flowers in greater beauty than any king of this earth has ever been able to claim. How much more then can he be trusted to care for the needs of his children? God cares. Following these two reasoned arguments, Jesus continued to show that God was indeed aware of the needs of his disciples. Their needs were actually, in fact, common to all men. The unbelieving world is consumed with the pursuit of their needs. Yet the servants of Christ did not need to be. So God 
knows. Over and over again, Christ commanded his disciples, you must not be anxious. Well, recall what we mean in this context when we are speaking of anxiety. We are not talking about concern, and we're not even necessarily just talking about fear. There is a time and a place when both of those are good, natural, wise. What we are talking about is concern about something that is beyond any level that is rational. It is to be obsessed with something, to be out of balance in our perspective about the importance of something. It is to be paralyzed or controlled by fear. So shut down by fear that it causes us to not be able to obey the commands of our Lord. To fail in our obedience. And in this context, with that definition, anxiety is something that is faithless. It is sinful. Anxiousness reveals a lack of understanding about God, about His creation, and about man's place within God's creation. It reveals that someone places far too much faith in themselves or other men, or in the worldly systems that men devise in order to supply their needs. That futile way of thinking and living is not fitting of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. They should know better. They have a higher purpose and calling than just to chase the base needs around them like the animals do and the unbelievers do. They are servants of God. They cannot live like slaves of sin or slaves of this fallen worldly system. In our passage this morning, we will address the final command in this section that Jesus gave to his disciples against anxiety. As Christ looks to protect his disciples from man's proclivity to project their anxiety into the future. We are not to be anxious about our needs today, and neither are we to be anxious about our needs for tomorrow. We will end our time together with a call to be strong and courageous in the calling that we have received from Christ. Nowhere in this will we pretend that we can escape all fear, or even that it would be good for us if we could. We do recognize, however, that we cannot allow fear to paralyze us. We must learn to be courageous. We must learn to walk in obedience to Christ no matter the cost, no matter the difficulty. As such, we need encouragement. We need encouragement from from God's Word. We need encouragement from the church. One to another. Well, continuing in our text before us, after Christ appealed to his hearers' sense of reason and logic, Jesus continued, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Beloved, What do we really know about what will be tomorrow? 
What control do we have over what will come tomorrow? Well, turn with me to James 4, 13 through 16. You'll find James after Hebrews and before 1 and 2 Peter. James 4, 13 through 16. We'll read through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it is sin. Of course, this echoes wisdom found elsewhere in Scripture. Think of Proverbs 27.1. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Well, if you have lived any real amount of time, you have experienced this reality. Day after day may come and go like countless before it. Yet you have those days when unexpected, even life-altering events occurred. There was no way for you to see that it was coming. There was no way for you to prepare for it. There was no way for you to prevent it. So that begs a natural question. If we cannot speak boldly about tomorrow, what makes us think that we can overcome tomorrow's challenges with today's anxiety? If anxiety is the most impotent of our labors, as I have been trying to show us, then what good do we think it does for us Especially when that that anxiety is projected into the future, into what is yet unknown, that we cannot know what is coming. In the model prayer, sometimes called the Lord's Prayer, that Jesus taught His disciples earlier, we read in Matthew 6.11 that we are instructed to pray daily for our needs for that day. We are to daily look to our Father in heaven for everything that we need then, for everything we need for that day. In this instruction, Jesus taught us something of what it means to trust in God. You see, God has given us a large part of the big picture of what He is doing on this earth. God has told us how everything is going to end. We know ultimately in the end what is coming. We know that He is the ultimate and eternal victor. We know that in Him, in Christ, we will have victory. He has given us every reason to be able to trust Him, to obey Him, and to walk in faith. 
What he hasn't given us is a daily play-by-play of how each trial we face will come upon us. He hasn't shown us the trial and he hasn't shown us ahead of time exactly how he's going to sustain us in the midst of that trial. We don't know how he will provide for us day after day. And we are taught not to ask him about tomorrow's provision. That's a great picture of what it means to walk in faith. That we ask for what we need by each step that we take. To worry about how we will survive today is to doubt the ability, the care, and the knowledge of God. Such we have already labored to show these past two weeks. To worry about how we will survive tomorrow is to doubt that God will be the same tomorrow as he is today and the same that he has been for every day before. It is to doubt his promise and his providence. And it is also to transfer our attention and our efforts from those things that we can actually have an effect on, those things we can do something about, transfer it from there to those things which will always remain outside of our grasp. We are meant to look ahead. We are meant to to use our rational minds that God has given us to try and anticipate things that are likely to await us. Some of those things are relatively sure. Some of those things are hoped for. Some of those things are feared. As far as we are able and is within wisdom in accordance with our ability, with what is in our ability today to handle, as we face our struggles day by day, with what we have left when we are dealing with today, it is good for us to plan, to look forward, to prepare, to best meet those challenges that wisdom says we are likely to meet. In so doing that, we rob uncertainty of its power to make us anxious. Even so... Planning and preparation will only ease our anxiety if they are coupled with faith in the good providence and provision of our Lord. So all the preparation, all the planning that we can do today will only ease anxiety if it is coupled with a rock steady faith in God's good providence and provision. Because we can never see every possibility. Nor can we ever adequately prepare for all eventualities. We have limited time. We have limited resources. We have limited abilities. A man who feels the burden to both work and guarantee the results of that work is a man who cannot rest. It is a man who has no faith. Learn the lesson from the farmer. They are diligent to work. They are diligent to plan ahead. They they labor that they might be prepared and ready. And they take action each day to the greatest ability that they have. Yet they know that no matter what they do, no matter how hard they work, no matter how well they plan, 
that God controls the weather. That God alone actually causes plants to grow. So after you have done what you can, you must either learn to trust and rest, or you will drive yourself mad with worry and fear. Often in the process, undoing whatever prosperity and comfort you have managed to build for yourself. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Tomorrow will have its own troubles. And all too often those troubles turn out to be different than we expected. And our obsessing over them today will have made us no more ready to face them. So yes, we must not be anxious about tomorrow. If we are, we will either end up worrying about the same thing twice, just because we worry about it today doesn't mean that we won't worry about it tomorrow, or we waste time worrying about something that doesn't even happen. Beloved, we cannot work ahead when it comes to worry. Anxiety about tomorrow does not give us a day off tomorrow. It does not mean that the problems then just won't happen tomorrow. Jesus said that each sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Well, if you happen to be a little bit old school and you look at the King James Version, you'll realize that this word that both the ESV and NASB translate as trouble is in the KJV translated as evil. The Greek word translated here actually means wickedness or evil or malice. It can also denote difficulties, a sense of bad or foreboding or depravity. In fact, in the vast majority of times that this word is used in the ESV or NASB, it is translated as malice or evil. So why is that important that we understand that as we approach this text? Well, we need to see that Christ isn't just conveying that each day will have enough work to do on its own, or that each day will present enough obstacles to overcome, or that each day will just have enough to keep us busy so we don't need to worry about it. It's, it's coming. What he is clearly saying is that each day has enough malice and evil that we don't need to look beyond the malice and evil that we are currently engaged with in order to find enough to keep ourselves busy. Each day, there are forces that are waging war against us. Each day, there's an adequate number of enemies charging us that we need to face them today. And trust God that we will also be able to face the ones that come tomorrow when they come. In fact, and the, the attempt to deal with tomorrow's malice today means that we will fail against the enemies that are already present before us. There are enough dragons for us to slay today. We can't afford to get bogged down worrying about which ones we might face 
tomorrow. Beloved, God places greater value on your faithfulness today than on your dwelling on concerns for tomorrow. Today's obedience is much more valuable than your plan to be obedient tomorrow. Mankind is given the ability to look forward, to anticipate. It's what separates us from the animals. Yet he remains only able to live in the present. No matter how much of a good idea you think you have of what is coming, you cannot live in the future. You live now. Attempts to dwell in the past or in the future will lead us to dissatisfaction and anxiety. Unable to affect change in either the past or the future, you would just extend time and energy for no possible gain. Now, how does that look? Having learned from the past, we live in faithful obedience today to the best of our knowledge and our ability. As we keep an eye toward tomorrow, with the future and the hope that has been promised to us. The first part of that is we learn from what we have been taught and what we have experienced. We can't be taught by what we're facing today or what we might face tomorrow. We don't yet know their lessons. So we are taught by those things that have been because we know how they ended. We know the lessons from those things that are past. The second part is today we must work. Today we are busy. Today we labor and we toil. All the while praying and trusting that, the, that God will give us wisdom to know what to do, the ability to do it, and the resources that we need uh, to be available at hand. See, we gain nothing but apathy if we rest on past success and try to forever live in bygone glory. We gain nothing but misery by dwelling on past failures as though we can drum up an adequate level of self-pity or self-hatred. And if we do enough, if we hate ourselves enough, if we worry enough about those things in the past that somehow we can unmake our mistakes. But in either case, we can do nothing there. In either case, whether we are prone to look at the good in the past or dwell on the bad in the past, we must teach ourselves to learn the lesson that is there, to repent if necessary, and then to move forward. Let it inform your today and help you plan for tomorrow, but you must move on. We cannot dwell in the past. And the third part of that, without an eye to the future, we will lose sight of why we labor today. Yes, we live in today, but we do not live for this day. 
We live in light of eternity. We live in light of that big grand picture that God has painted for us. That promise that one day, one day we will be freed from this body of death. One day we will be freed from the weaknesses of our flesh. One day we will be with our Lord. We live for that day. Knowing that there will be a day when we will stand before God in judgment. That is the day we live for. with our eyes fixed on what is to come. Tomorrow, next year, and the end of the age. So that means we live today, fighting today's dragons, yet we do so in the knowledge and hope that this battle that we wage will come to an end. There is a purpose. There is a plan There is purpose in everything that happens to us, everything that we must fight through. God is working in it all. There is something beyond that gives meaning and purpose to what we do today and that guides us and drives us ever forward. So learning from what has come before, we live in today with an eye on the future. If we are to live each day trusting in God's provision and not being anxious about what will come tomorrow, does that mean that we are not meant to plan and prepare for the future? I trust that I've already answered that question, but I want to take a moment for us to look to wisdom directly from God's word. And first off, anytime we think of planning and preparation, we need to remember that no amount of planning and scheming by men will ever thwart the counsel of the Lord. I ask you to turn with me to Psalm 33. We'll start reading in verse 8. So after Job and before Proverbs, right around the middle of your Bible, Psalm 33. Verses 8 to 12. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. So how then should we make plans for the future? Proverbs 15.22, Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of the man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 19, 21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Proverbs 21, 5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Just one more, Isaiah 32, 7 and 8, as for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. 
He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. The righteous man looks forward according to the knowledge that God has given him to anticipate what he is likely to face. He makes plans accordingly so that he will be well prepared for the challenges and he is able to continue working according to the call that God has placed on his life. He does this knowing that unless God establishes his plans, unless God establishes his steps, he will be planning for nothing. He does this in submission to God's word and in submission to God's purpose. He does so informed by much godly counsel. And he trusts that this will be the normal means by which God cares for him and the people that are under his charge. What he does not do is assume that he controls the future. He does not assume that he will slay every dragon that he faces by his own strength, in his own wisdom. He does not assume that he himself is causing the abundance. He does not boast about tomorrow, but he is diligent to prepare. He knows there will be enemies that he will face that he did not anticipate and that he cannot match. But he does not have anxiety on account of these because he knows the God in whom he trusts and he rests confidently under his care. But what do the righteous do when they feel anxiety welling up within them? And beloved, we must have a plan for this because this is something that I can say with certainty that each of us will face. Some continually, some less frequently, but we will all face temptation. We will all be tempted to give in to anxiety. What should we do then? Well, we should not turn to the myriad of self-help books or the self-help gurus that the world has is spouting up like weeds all around us. We don't turn to Oprah to see what she has to tell us about self-care. We don't start by browsing through Facebook, looking for a specially tailored group to speak into our situation and calm our fears. In fact, often those tend to do just the opposite. These tend to be places for fearful people to feed their fear among other fearful people who do not know them, who do not really care for them, and who cannot hold them accountable. So where does the Christian turn when they are stressed, confused, afraid, or just generally anxious? Well, they turn to God's word, they turn to prayer, and they turn to the body of Christ on this earth so that they can find encouragement in their hour of need. 
as we read in Proverbs, with many advisors, a, plans, a man's plan succeeds. At the very least, we know that this is true when Christians seek out godly counsel from faithful believers that God has placed around them. Beloved, use this great gift that God has given to us. When you are feeling anxious, don't just watch it build and pray that it won't leave you crippled. Reach out to one another. Seek the counsel and the support of one another. We are meant, we are designed to be a system of strength, wisdom, and support one for another. And you can always reach out to your pastor or the other faithful, godly men in leadership in your church. Beloved, all of us are given one to another as a loving gift from our Heavenly Father. Far too often, we live as though we are an island that must rise or fall by ourselves. And we cannot live like that. We were not meant to live like that. We will be broken if you try. Often we try to act as if we ignore our anxiety, it will just go away. If we just pretend it doesn't exist, it can't hurt us. But we know this doesn't work. So what do I call on you to do? I call on you to face your fears. To actually name the source of your anxiety. Don't be afraid to look it in the eyes to understand where is it coming from. To understand what it is trying to make you do or to keep you from doing. Evaluate if the fear that you are feeling is reasonable. Is it rational? Is it in balance? Take stock of what you can do to overcome those fears that are reasonable and determined not to be controlled by those fears that are not reasonable. And when, and this will happen, when you are not sure how to make those determinations, when you don't have the strength to look at your anxiety in the face, confront it, to name it, to deal with it, then seek out the wisdom and the strength of other Christians. They can help you. Don't believe the lie that you have been left alone in your misery and fear. Don't believe the lie that you must remain in bondage. Don't believe the lie that just because this is the normal condition of man, that there is no freedom available. Concern for what might happen can cause us to dwell on something to the point of panic, or it can prepare us to adapt and mitigate what is feared as a potentiality. And if we adapt and mitigate what we fear, we remove the, its power to hold us. A very insignificant example of what I mean. 
I preach off of an iPad. I have a fear that one day my iPad will lose my sermon manuscript file before I get up here to preach. Or that somehow the battery will will fail right in the middle of a sermon. I will lose where I'm at. That I won't remember what scripture passages that I was waiting to go to. I have that fear. I have heard that it's happened to many others in the past. There is no reason to think that that will never happen to me. And so... I also bring with me a printed copy of my manuscript. So if my iPad does mysteriously die, I can pull that out and within probably 30 seconds, figure out where I was at and continue. Thereby, I have removed the ability of that fear to make me anxious. I don't think about it anymore. I don't worry about it anymore. I have adapted to prevent that fear from having any hold over me. But what about an example that maybe more of us can identify with? I have a fear that one of our vehicles will break down and need repairs. This has happened before. This has happened before often. I have every reason to expect that this is going to happen again. And it's going to happen at a time when I don't just have a bunch of extra money lying around which happens never. Because of that, we make a concerted effort to try and set money aside for when that does happen. So hopefully we can cover those expenses that we have every reason to believe are coming. And then when those expenses are more than we can handle, which does happen, I can trust that God will provide as he has always been faithful to provide in the past. So in this fear, we plan ahead. We do what we are able to do to be prepared. And then when we have done what we can, we trust God and rest. Seemingly mild examples, but I think they illustrate well things that we can do to look and see what are we afraid of and what can we do about it. And none of that has to be that we beat ourselves up because we have a concern over something that might seem very silly to someone else. Without the experience of fear, no courage is needed. You hear of courage being defined as being afraid and doing the right thing anyway. So courage is not the lack of fear. It is the willingness to look into fear and not let it stop you from doing what you know must be done. But without courage, fear is an unhealthy and deadly foe. It can keep us from taking risks even when those risks are calculated and planned for. It can keep us from gaining the reward that we might have if we were willing to put some risk on the table and reach out for something that we desire. Fear keeps us from growing, from changing, from moving forward. Christians can overcome fear because of the ability, the knowledge, and the care of our God. 
Christians overcome uncertainty and feelings of helplessness because of our faith in the one who is in control. And Christians are regularly called to encourage one another unto this end. Old Testament saints were told to be strong and courageous because God was with them and God was going before them. To be strong and courageous because God had a plan for them and a purpose for them. They needed not to fear any obstacles they might face. They had no need to be paralyzed on any fear that they would encounter on the journey of which God called them. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 31, starting in verse 2. The fifth book in the Bible, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy, chapter 31, verses 2 through 8. This is Moses speaking to Israel and speaking of Joshua as Moses is essentially handing over his role in leading the people. And he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not cross over this Jordan. The Lord your God will go before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, king of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you, and you shall do according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. So in the face of several well-established and well-defended enemies in the land that they had journeyed so long to obtain, Israel did have much to fear, at least in the eyes of the world. Remember, these are the lands in which there were men of great stature. There were giants in the land. Think of a bunch of Goliaths, not just one behemoth, but a whole army of them facing you across the battle line. Their size and their strength were so intimidating that when the 12 spies were sent into the land to observe the goodness of the land that God had promised them, 10 of them came back quivering so much at the knees that they convinced the entire nation of Israel to lose their faith in God and to refuse to go in and capture the land that they had been given. Even so, even with all that terror before them, they had every reason to be strong and courageous. God had promised them the land. It was God who went before them to secure it for them. And it was God who had acted mightily on their behalf before. 
that they had witnessed or their parents had witnessed the miracles in Egypt as God subdued and crippled and put to shame the greatest army on earth. And now even as they face these dangers with that knowledge and the task ahead of them and the purpose to which they were called, they had every reason to be strong and courageous. Well, you might say, well, that was then. That was just that time. What about now? What great charge and promise do we have to face the dragons that are before us? Well, we have the great commission. The promise that Christ will be with us to the end of the age and that all authority has been given to our King. I know we read this last week, but it bears repeating. So turn with me back to Matthew, this time to chapter 28, starting in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Beloved, we need to learn to take this commission as our charge and the promise that the gospel will act in power on this earth. We aim not merely at gaining converts. Our aim is not merely to get people to say, okay, sure, I believe. Our aim is at growing and developing fully matured disciples of Christ. Soldiers for Christ who will go out and make new converts that they will raise up to be fully mature, strong, and courageous disciples of Christ. Do you honestly think that as this commission is followed around the globe, that it won't change things? That it won't affect the culture around us? Instead of just a promise that, it, that God would defeat the enemies of Israel, we live in the reality that Christ has already overcome the world. We have a purpose from God and a promised provision toward that purpose. Our God will supply all our needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.19 so the Old Testament saints were promised the beautiful land, Genesis 15, 18 through 21. And then as heirs of the faith of Abraham, which is what we are, we are heirs to the whole world. The promises of God did not shrink. They expanded to cover all the earth. Romans 4, 13 through 16. Beloved, no matter what each day brings, we have every reason to have courage in Christ. Even so, we are a fragile and forgetful people. While God's Word and His Spirit dwelling within us ought to be more than enough to keep us confident, to keep us motivated, to keep us faithful, we need regular encouragement from other believers. 
We need one another. If you don't like to admit that you need anyone else, get over it. You need others around you. We need each other. It seems that God knew that need as well. And He cared enough to do something about it. He gave us the church. For those of us us who are here, He gave us this church as a local expression of His great gift to all who would follow His Son. Beloved, our courage will rise and fall. When we have it, we must share it with everyone around us and thereby pass it on to those who are in need. And when we lack it, we need those around us who have courage and can extend it back to us. This has been the pattern of the church for thousands of years. Christians encouraging one another in times of relative ease and in the midst of fiery trials. We find courage in those who surround us. And we find courage in the great chorus of the faithful who have come before. Let's look at just a couple passages about our need to encourage one another. Romans 15, 4-6 For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 10, 23-25, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Beloved, this is why it is so important that we do regularly meet with one another. The local church is vital. It doesn't matter what Fauci says. It doesn't matter what any politician says. It doesn't matter what any king or emperor says. Actually meeting together as the church of God is vital. And Christians have been putting their lives on the line for thousands of years because they have known that truth. Technology is great, but it cannot replace the encouragement that physically being among one another brings. This is a lesson that all of us in this land should have now learned well. One that we won't forget next time the government thinks it knows better than our God. One more Bible story to give us courage and an example of how to face anxiety. Think of, how, think of Abraham and his response when he was asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. There can be no doubt that this command, this direction of the Lord, would have caused anxiety to well from within him. We have plenty of evidence of the fact that Abraham was not that strong. He was a weak man. Regularly, who gave in to temptation and fear and acted the coward. 
Yet in this case, he proved himself faithful to follow the command of God. Abraham had a promise. He had been promised that he would be a father of nations. And yet it had taken even him into the years beyond which he should have been allowed to father a son just to have one son. And then God called him to sacrifice that one son. How did Abraham respond? Well, he didn't allow his fear to keep him from being obedient to God. He didn't see the whole picture. He didn't understand why God would call him to sacrifice Isaac. Yet he believed God and his faith led him to obey. And it was counted as righteousness. The author of Hebrews wrote that Abraham considered that God was even able to raise Isaac from the dead. Yet Abraham had no guarantee that God was going to do that. But still he trusted in the promise of God. And he acted in obedience, even though he didn't understand how God's promise could possibly be fulfilled if he lost his one and only son. In the story of Abraham, we are encouraged to obey. Even when we don't understand what we are being called to do. Even if we don't understand how God's charge of us today can possibly bring about the end that he has promised for us. God was faithful to Abraham. God was able to increase Abraham's faith. As such, God is able to increase our faith through Abraham. Beloved, let us encourage one another. Let us learn to help one another to learn the lessons of what has come before and to keep an eye on what is coming so that we can be diligent today. As with any issue that is deep-seated in the heart, even into the realm of idolatry, there are no simple, do these three things and you will be guaranteed a life free from anxiety recipes for success. This is a complex enemy that preys upon the weaknesses of our bodies and the weaknesses of our hearts. The only cure for worry is Christ. Only He can free us from its bondage. Only he can reveal the father to us in such a real way and in such full measure that we will kind of have the kind of hope and trust in the plan of the father that will drive out all fear. So I call on you to meditate on the faithfulness of our heavenly father to his people as we have in the testimony of his word to see how God has ever cared for his people better than they have deserved to remember how God has cared for you in your life, in the life of your family, in the life of those around you. Pray that God would free you from bondage of fear and worry, free you from the lies of the enemy that somehow God cannot be trusted. Above all, in all that we do, in our work, our play, in the world and at home, set Christ as your focal point and seek him. 
Seek his kingdom and his righteousness. Because any portion of our hearts, any portion of our lives that we reserve for ourselves will ultimately be filled by the things of this world and the anxiety that comes with them. Yet when Christ is everything, anxiety can no longer have any hold on us. Father, I thank you for these words of Christ. I thank you for the commands, even if they are not easy to follow, even if obedience is beyond our natural strength. Father, do not let us believe the lies of the world that we must live in bondage. Let us not believe the lies of the world or find the false comforts of the world. But let us keep our eyes on Christ and be able to trust each day as we ask for our daily bread that our Father in heaven cares for us. And he will bring about all that he has promised. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We come now to the table of our Lord. This table that is for Christians. That is table that is for those who have placed their faith in Christ, who are walking in obedience after him, who are trusting in him imperfectly, who, yes, fail often, yet who know that they can return to their loving Father when they do, and their sins will be forgiven. They will be restored. This is given to us as a gift to strengthen our faith. This is a gift to encourage us in Christ, to remind us of the cost that was paid to know that our debts are already canceled in Christ. That this world has no longer a hold over us. So I invite you to come forward to grab of the elements and in just a moment we will take them together. We're in Matthew 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing and he broke it and gave it to his disciples and he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Father, we thank you for this reminder. We thank you for this encouragement to our faith. May it teach us to rest in the finished work of your Son. To rest from our efforts to be made righteous by our own strength by our own actions, by our own good works, but to rest in your Son even as we diligently labor day by day. 
awaiting what is promised for us. Father, teach us to long for the day of the Lord when we will see evil finally and completely undone from this world and we are able to rest in eternal joy in the presence of our Savior. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.